Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the dazzling and perpetual St. Brain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Becky Peters, and with my co-host Ben Cobb, we are so excited and feel so lucky to host this show to help us all be more informed, inspired, and connected educators by bringing the advice and strategies of giants to the earbuds of busy teachers. And we think that the word giant is a completely appropriate way to describe the guests that we've been lucky enough to have on the show. In our last episode, we talked with Daniel Pink about the science of perfect timing, about chronotypes and the peak trough recovery periods of our days. So if you missed that, be sure to go back and listen. And in this episode, we talk educational technology and so much more with innovator, author, and all-around educational giant, Jenny Magira. Yeah, it has been a wild and an amazing ride. We've been having a ton of fun, Becky. And one of the things we've tried to do is keep these episodes episodes evergreen, as they call it in the podcasting biz, meaning even if you discover rainwaves three years from now, coming back and listening to an episode from today that our guests' advice and their strategies will always be useful. So we try to avoid trending topics on Twitter. We don't get hung up on current events. We also don't rest on our laurels or get bogged down by any yawning-inducing debates. Laurel. And even though most of our episodes are timeless, for this one, we're going to encourage our listeners to do some reflection on the year, which may lend itself best to the end of the year, which is when we're recording this podcast. But we think reflection is good any time of year. For some of our listeners, you've done it. You've made it to the end of the school year. Congratulations. But regardless of when you're hearing this episode, we all know that learning is stickiest when we reflect. And so before we hop into our interview with Jenny, where we talk about the power of technology, let's reflect on our favorite lessons or activities that we saw or used this year with technology. Yes, summer is a great time for teachers to set a goal for a new skill they want to learn, a new project they want to incorporate. And if you're going to a tech conference, there's the National ISTE conference coming up. There's in EDCO here in our home state of Colorado. We have a tech camp in our district. And so hopefully hearing a couple of our favorite things that we reflect on will maybe inspire you to learn a new skill this summer. I saw technology transform teaching and learning a ton this year. It was hard to narrow it down to just one thing. But I'm going to go with a project that I got to do with students that I modeled after an educator in St. Paul, Minnesota, named Jesse Buto. And each year for the past three years, Jesse has a group of fifth graders that he takes through a podcasting project that he models kind of after This American Life. So what he does is all year long, these fifth graders collect family stories. What are some funny, sad, powerful family stories that he has? And they conduct interviews and they cut the audio And they assemble a podcast that they then share with the world. And these are some amazing stories. And we'll link to them in the show notes. But just so you get an idea of some of the production value and the storytelling, here's a snippet of a episode called Bombed by someone named Mimi in Minnesota. My grandma was born in England. She lives in Scotland now, but she didn't move there just for the pleasure of it. And my first memory is my father carrying me down the stairs in a hotel and the glass falling round about us because a bomb had dropped. My great-grandpa's office was bombed in 1940. My grandma was only two. This is the story of the time when she was bombed. So we basically got out podcasted by a fifth grader in Minnesota, but putting that aside, super powerful project, This Fifth Grade Life, and we will link to that in the show notes for you to listen to the rest of that episode. It is great. I tried this not with fifth graders, but with fourth graders at Thunder Valley, and I was just blown away by the amazing stories that these fourth graders told, and I had so much fun helping them tell their stories. 
I'm still collecting all their audio files, but once we have those all turned in, I will link them on our website, brainwaves.com. But just seeing the stories that they told, they're amazing, awesome, powerful stories, and all of our kids come to class with those stories. Becky, what did you see this year that you liked? Those are so amazing, Ben. Thank you for sharing those. I'm partial to examples like the one you just gave, the kinds that highlight student creation and student collaboration with technology. So I'm going to give a few of those. This year, I saw fifth graders working with first graders to make Lego We Do robotic alligators and collaborating to make them work. And they figured it out together, which was really, really cool to see. I saw a fifth grader who taught herself how to code so that she could make a math app for her peers who don't have their math facts memorized because she felt bad that they didn't. I saw students developing, not only using, but developing augmented and virtual reality environments and then using those environments to learn something new. Uh, I also got to see a lesson where middle school students through virtual reality were put into a human cell and then other students were standing around them, prompting them to find the different organelles and then tell them about the characteristics. I saw a lesson where students took a virtual field trip to Mars with their iPads. I've also seen some really amazing stop motion animation videos in art and other classes. And honestly, I've been reflecting a lot about just the power, the incredible power of research and journalism that educational technology affords our students. They can research anything and use it to inform their projects. I I still remember dreading some of my projects when I was in middle school. Imagine a little version of me with glasses that were as big as my face. I was super cool. But I always dreaded those because I had to go to the library, find the right encyclopedia, all to find like a meager paragraph about chameleons. And now you can find videos, articles, original research, instead of checking out 20 different books at the library, which is amazing. And the increase in teacher collaboration to me too is just as if not more exciting than all of those examples. I mean, on top of this podcast, like connecting virtually with other educators, sharing created Neopod presentations, collaborating on Google Docs. And we didn't even talk about blended learning. We have teachers that are flipping and blending their learning to allow for deeper learning during their precious face-to-face time with their students. So basically to quote Penny Lane from Almost Famous, it's all happening. I'm going to pretend that I understand that pop culture reference, but I don't. But I do agree with you, Becky. It is all happening. And the coolest part for me is that you don't have to hop on Teachers Pay Teachers and buy these things, that you can reach out through Twitter or through us and connect with these teachers doing amazing things, that there are a lot of challenges to teaching in this digital age and to keeping our students' attention, but there's also a ton of opportunities. And I think one of the people who speaks best to these opportunities is our guest today, Jenny Magira. So Jenny, in addition to being an author of a fabulous book that we'll link to in the show notes, is now the chief program officer for the EdTech team, a group of people that is trying to share these stories of awesome student work all over the place. And before she worked for the EdTech team, she was the chief innovation officer for the Displains Public School District in Illinois, and she was the digital learning coordinator for the Academy of Urban School Leadership in CPS, Chicago Public Schools. Jenny uses her classroom experience to inform her work and has amazing tangible advice for you. And as you're listening, we hope you think of ways that you could try some of these things that she talks about this summer. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Jenny McGarra. I'm the Chief Program Officer for EdTech Team. We're an organization that works around the world to inspire and empower educators. I live in beautiful Chi-Town, Chicago, Illinois. Um, And I think a lot of you who are listening are probably going to be in my neighborhood this summer for ISTE 2018. So really 
jazz about everyone, uh, the whole world coming to my hometown and seeing beautiful, delicious Chicago. So Jenny, I want to ask you about your awesome book, Courageous Adventures. Uh, And I'm always curious about people's um, paths to where they got. So you started off as a teacher. You were in the classroom for a while. What prompted you to uh, write Courageous Adventures? And what were your goals in writing that book uh, about educational adventures and then helping teachers take risks in their classrooms? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I I taught for about a decade. I was a full-time teacher for seven years and then kind of did the coach slash teach thing for three. And throughout that time, both uh, when I was a full-time teacher and then when I was coaching and teaching, I kept thinking, I kept looking for resources as all teachers do. You get scrappy, right? So if you're, you know, going to a PD or support and it's not quite meeting your needs, you're looking for blogs and books and YouTube videos and anything you could find. And I was cobbling together all these concepts, but I wasn't finding exactly what I needed. A lot of them were like, how do you use this app? How do you get started with iPad? It's 30 ways to use X program or tool. And what I really just wanted to do was be a better teacher. Like I just wanted to know, like, I have these age old problems in my classroom that I've been struggling with that I know I'm not alone in. How do I address them? For example, you know, I had a ton of students. I had, I think I had more students than most have as a four or five teacher. I had one year, like 37 kids in my class. And, wow. you know, after transition, only about like 37 instructional minutes after they sat down and they calmed down and had to leave and all that to yep. teach math, how do I differentiate for all those kiddos in that amount of time and, and not go crazy and not make them crazy? Like that differentiation. Everyone is trying to figure that out, Right. I hated grading. I love knowing where my students are and assessing them and understanding like you're at this level, here's how I teach you uh, more effectively. But I hated sitting at my kitchen table at night grading when I really wanted to be watching like whatever TV show or like chilling with my husband with a glass of water. So, (laughs) um, you know, like these are the things that we, we struggle with and it's not new. It has nothing to do with technology. But now I had these uber powerful tools and resources in my classroom, and I knew that there was some magical spell I could cast to bridge that gap of challenge to solution. I just didn't know what it was. And through cobbling together research and trial and error and many tears, I found that there were so many innovative opportunities for me to break down barriers and walls using these tools because I never had access to things that could really like transcend space and time. You know, with an iPad, I could clone myself and have 10 differentiated math videos that I could create on a Sunday evening and meet each kid at different levels while pulling a small group. So I could teach 10 lessons simultaneously. So I was like literally bending time. I could bring my kids to other planets and worlds through virtual reality and and bend space. So these are things that weren't possible before, but could allow me to solve problems that had always existed in the classroom. So the whole concept of the book is to go about it, not based on how do you get better at tech, but what what are the consistent and deeply painful problems that we face as educators in a K-12 space? And then what are innovative ways for us to approach those challenges using um, using these tools that we now have access to today? So it's problem-based innovation. It's what's your problem? How can we come up with innovative solutions? And then how do we track our experience as we try and go on this adventure and, and solve that problem? 
That's incredible. I love the idea of, of cloning yourself and, and having the flip classroom kind of feel like that. Like it, people say that all the time, like, oh, if there were only five of me, but with technology, you can really do that. Yeah. That's fantastic. In my role, I am encouraging teachers to try a lot of the new things that you talk about in your book and in your TED Talk. And one of the biggest areas of pushback is from the math teachers. And so I think what makes you super unique is that you have done innovative teaching and learning in a math setting. So what would your advice be for the math people who are like, well, that doesn't work in a math classroom? So this is actually really a a huge passion for me. So long story short, my origin story was I was that kid in class who was awful and hated math. And I don't know if you know this from my last name, but I'm Asian American. I'm Korean American. And I fell victim to the stereotype threat as a kid where a lot of my teachers saw me and expected me to be like awesome at mathematics because that is the stereotypical story of of Asian kids. And I wasn't, I was complete garbage at it. And so it was a really huge pain point for me as a kid growing up. And I grew to really hate math. When I became a, a teacher, I didn't want to teach math. I wanted to be a social studies, English fourth grade teacher, which is like not a real thing. I mean, it very rarely is fourth grade de- uh, departmentalized when it is. Like, I don't know if you can get away with never teaching math or science. <laughs> but um, I found myself in my kids and I saw my students really struggling with math and saw their stories as well. And I actually had this moment where I was inspired to like really face my fears, you know, like if you're afraid of heights, go skydiving type thing. Mm. And I had to go back to school to get my master's degree, you know, to, to continue on in the school I was teaching at. And I decided to get it in mathematics education, which was the most terrifying decision I'd made to that point in my life. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to really like face the dragon and dive hard. And you know what? And, and I went into a program that was from the math department, not the EDU department. So it was hard, real math. And it was Whoa. the best thing I ever did um, career-wise up to that point. And I learned about the history of mathematics. Like, why is base 10 a more beautiful system than base 8 or base 6, which are mathematical systems in ancient cultures, um, and why that allows place value to work and, and all these different types of things. And because of that, I learned that mathematics is really creative. And that teaching math isn't about teaching kids to memorize algorithms and to like learn, you know, memorize their timetables and just like kind of feed them information and plug in this given, but really allowing them to discover patterns and understand the world through a beautiful logic that is is cross-cultural and, and really inspiring when you get down to like what is mathematics. And because of that, I really understood math as a creative art and knew that as an intermediate grades math teacher and then moving up to middle grades later, I could teach math in a really creative way. So when people are like, oh, technology, I think it's because we're looking for these sit and get, like, how are you going to memorize your times tables faster? How am I going to do, you know, 40 practice sets of this calculus uh, concept? But I would have my students have real world problems. I would bring my phone to a grocery store and uh, video myself going grocery shopping. 
and say to the kids, like, all right, like, was there a better deal I could have made? Could I have got that cheese for cheaper? Um, should I, is there, if I had this coupon, how would have that affected my, my final grocery bill? And the kids get it because they go grocery shopping with their parents and they jump on to apps like Explain Everything and screencast different solutions. They would use creative apps that a lot of people think are for literacy, like Toontastic, which is a plot building app that allows students to tell stories, to tell the narrative of my mathematics story. Like first, Miss McGarrow went to the grocery store and then she found a bag of cheese that was $2.99. Next, she discovered a bag of cheese that was $3.99, but it was 10 ounces instead of six ounces. The climax, which shall she buy? It's like the hero's journey (laughs) in buying cheese. Buy one, get one free was the better deal because of the rate problem that I just solved. And, And I really saw math as like that discovery of pattern and solution. And because of that whole experience of me not being good at math and having to f- discover math for myself, I saw, I saw it that way. And, and a lot of digital tools are about creativity and creation and math is creativity and creation. Oh, that's a really I've cool way to think about definitely it. Definitely never thought of it like that. Quick follow-up. I want to learn more and hear more examples like you just told. Do you know any good communities or or places I could follow for math examples where people do math outside of the box like that? Well, I can tell you people first. And yeah, that'd be great. Dan Meyer is um, someone that I met at um, actually the Apple Distinguished Educator Institute, like way back when we were, we went through that together in uh in Phoenix and he has a blog blog dot Mr. Meyer, M E Y E R.com M R not spelled out. Mr. M R M E Y E R.com. And he's just, he's a, just a nerdy educator who loves he's amazing. mathematics. Yeah. Actually, I think he also, you can just go to Mr. Meyer.com now too and see his stuff. And he, I think he works for, I think he, he works for a company. Desmos right now. I think yeah, he works for Desmos. You're right. Yeah. But he still blogs and he still shares his thinking and he's really open source. And he, ha- he has his curriculum in Google Drive on his blog that you can you can take a peek at. It's called Three Act Math. And it's really that concept of like finding math in the real world and, and finding hurt your head curiosity problems that are just going to get kids pumped about it. Yeah. So he is super inspirational to me and like really loves math for the beauty and creativity of math. So he's someone I would definitely follow on Twitter um, and, and check out his site. As a program, Mathalicious is yeah, also amazing. Yeah, and, and they're awesome because, again, I think they see math too as a creative, um, as a creative art as well, and they, they find the real world in math and get you pumped about it. And then, of course, there's following hashtag math chat on Twitter um, and, and thinking a lot of ed tech educators are like, I'm going to go to ISTE, I'm going to go to Q, I'm going to go to this ed tech team event, and for sure, go to those events. But diversify the type of events you go to. Go to an NCTM conference. Go to the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics and see the really innovative stuff they're doing because a lot of time there's not a bridge there. You'll go to an NCTM uh, conference and ed techies like us will be like, oh my God, it's so analog. They're using pencils. Yeah. (laughs) But the stuff they're doing is so thoughtful and creative. And then you can bring in the ed tech infusion and say, did you know that we could make this even more rad by bringing in this program? And then you're helping them grow, but they're also changing your mindset. 
I love that idea of diversifying your portfolio of going to different conferences. And I think even as like language arts teachers, or, you know, I, I think going to something like NCTM and, and going to those sites like Mathalicious or MrMeyer.com, um, those are great places where we can all realize that we can go across content areas and we can all be math teachers because it does happen all around us and it is beautiful and creative. Um, so I love that take on it. Thank you for that. I wanted to ask about uh, your in reading your books and or your book and and your blog and um, listening to you speak. It seems that you knew your students really really well in your classroom and were able to differentiate at a level that you rarely see. Um, so how did you gain that deep level of understanding about each of your students? If you don't mind sharing that. Absolutely. I think, I mean, there's the obvious relationship building of talk to them, right? You know, have lunch with them, you know, things like that, that, you know, I, I, in my first couple years of teaching, um, you know, you, you want to survive and I didn't eat lunch for years, you know, and no one does, you know, I, I was at one of those schools where you had 20 minutes after you dropped off your kids to like go to the bathroom, make two calls to a parent. And then it's like, lunch is over, pick up your class. Um, but I started doing something that I was inspired by some of my colleagues doing, which is like, I'm going to eat lunch every day, but I'm going to do it not by sitting in the teacher's lounge, but by like sitting with my kids. And it's a time for me to talk to them and not about like, did you do your homework or like stop, you know, bothering Jaheem every day, la la la. But like, just like chat, like, oh, you're into Avatar. Cool. Like my cousins are, let's talk. Um, and I would, I would eat lunch at a different table every day and sit with different kids. And, um, it, it became like my favorite part of the day. Cause I could just be me and just talk to my kids and get to know them. Um, something else too is, is especially if you work in a high needs area. So I've always served in, um, what folks call like underserved or high, low income, high risk schools. And, I think that we fall, especially if we were lucky enough to be raised in a more privileged community and an upbringing to feel like when you serve in those communities that you're trying to save the students, like Mm. I'm here to bring them opportunities and I need to save them and I need to like help them see the doorways they can walk through. And I think that there's a level of arrogance and hubris in that thinking. And so to be really careful about seeing our kids as whole people and not as, as you know, units that you need to shove knowledge into or underserved students who you need to save or a kid with an IEP that I need to like get to the next level, but like as human beings. And I think that shift in thinking is, is really nuanced and minute. But if you really think about it, like, how are you thinking about these kids? Are you thinking about them? Like you think of your own siblings or cousins or children. It really changes the way you talk to them. But it also changes the types of questions you ask them. Um, so I, I really tried to make sure that I was never coming into conversations with my kids as, as a savior or as, you know, someone better or as the teacher who is like in this very defined role, but just as one human being talking to another. And it, because of that, I got to ask deeper questions and say like, wow, you're really interested in this. Like, why is that so cool to you? Or, you know, what, what are you doing this weekend? And not just to make small talk, but because I really want to know. And, and because of that, I have relationships with my kids to this day. I just actually went to one of my girls got pregnant when she was in college and she checked in with me. She's like, I don't want to drop out. Can you help me? Um, she just graduated from nursing school, from graduate school, and she has a, a baby and her second on the way. And Wow. I, I, I taught her when she was a fourth grader. And it's just, I don't think I'd have that relationship with her if I didn't 
if I didn't really talk to her like a person as a kid. I I love that you talk about it this way because I really th- I mean it's it's dangerous and I I know that um you know people might be turned off to that kind of uh, perception, but I mean, really for us to look at ourselves and think about how we're talking to and about our students is so important. And, and I, you have a quote in your book, um, instead of asking students, what do you want to be when you grow up? Ask them, who do you want to be today? And in this way, we are no longer asking students to wait to matter. And I think even, you know, all these protests and everything we're seeing, we're seeing our students in a different light that they can be leaders today. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. Yes, I love that. All right, scratch the question about giving every kid a a draft book for freedom writers. Um, (laughs) I love one of your huge areas of passion is around the student agency. And in our district and around the world, that's something educators are starting to grapple with. And so I was wondering if you have a definition of student agency, and then if you can tell us an example of where you've seen that done really well. Yeah, so for me, student agency is about empowering students to believe that um, it, exactly what you just said, you know, that, that I, I believe that like every kid needs to know that they don't have to wait till they grow up to matter. You know, that idea of like, who do you want to be when you grow up? Um, changing that to who do you want to be today? And, and not only that, but giving them authentic opportunities to do something that will affect their own lives. So it's not just like, oh, I want to, uh, you know, have agencies so that I can change policy around something that doesn't affect me at all or to help people in this far off place or to like fundraise for uh, something I read about. But like, this is really affecting my community and will change like how I wake up and go to school and go to sleep every night. Um, and, and allowing them the access to tools and voice and not just mindset, but uh, temporal opportunities. And by temporal, I mean like making time in your day to let them exercise those skills that you're building. So one really great example of that is that school that I taught in forever, uh, the, the, the school that I was a teacher at, which is called National Teachers Academy. And it's on the near south side of Chicago. It's actually just a few blocks from the McCormick Place Conference Center where ISTE is going to be this year. Hmm. National Teachers Academy is a neighborhood Chicago public school, K-8 school, actually has an infant toddler center too, um, non-charter, your average school. And it's a level one plus school, which means that it is the highest achieving school accreditation that Chicago public schools can give. Um, it has this beautiful community where people like the teachers, the students, the parents all feel like they're in it together. It's truly a village. And it serves a predominantly um, low-income African-American population and has historically. Chicago Public Schools um, has voted to close this school, this high-achieving school that serves a a high-minority, low-income population, to turn the building into a high school for a more affluent, less diverse uh, neighborhood north of the school. What? I know. It's the saddest story. And like, these are like my babies that like I've served and like the- Oh my God. Is that happening right now? They're voting on it? They just voted on it. (gasps) It's all over the Chicago news. But here's the thing. It's a K-12 school, which means the kids who go there are between the ages of five and 13. When you think about five to 13 year olds, you don't think about kids who are speaking at public hearings and city hall and, um, going to the Illinois gubernatorial race is happening right now. You don't normally see that. Normally, if you hear about student voice, you think high schoolers might be doing something like that. 
this this school has given their t- their kids such an education in in social justice equity and voice that these students are speaking on social media and in person about this injustice and not just sitting back and taking it and so they've done things like interrupts in a really respectful and um and and well thought out manner the the gubernatorial race when they had a call for public comment and say how are you as a leader of my state going to stick up for kids like me and what's happening to us right now? They've gone to numerous city hall events. They went to an event where Chance the Rapper, the Grammy award-winning artist was there and um, he heard these kids speak and wants to work with them now. They created a hashtag called Give NTA a Chance because Chance the Rapper went to a school that was just a mile north of NTA and asked him to to work with them and, and now he's going to be. They um, have gone to Chicago board meetings, to local school council meetings, to aldermanic meetings. They have a social media hashtag, hashtag um, we are NTA. They created a Weebly site. They have a Facebook page. And if you look at the YouTube channel of like the kindergarteners, the kindergarteners speaking with such passion and confidence about the power of their school community, that there's no nothing more beautiful and at the same time heartbreaking um, as this. And it is the most pure example of student agency that I have seen anywhere in the world. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we will link to all of those pages and hashtags you just said in our show notes. That is absolutely. I just want to add one more thing to that. I think that the reason why that is such a pure example of student agency is because, again, it's a community effort and it's believed deeply by the entire community. So it's not a teacher in a classroom doing it. Everyone from the principal to the lunchroom manager to the parents to the the school engineering staff believe that the students' voices are just as important as the adult voices in the building, and they move through their building with that culture and belief. And, and I think that that is why it's so powerful. That's a huge mind shift. And I think that's something we can all work on to get better at. Um, and I, you know, kind of as a, as a precursor to that, like we, we definitely have um, some forward-thinking teachers and students, and, you know, our students have have spoken and, and testified at legislature to get bills passed and things like this, and I, I think it's amazing opportunities that we need to be giving our students to, for their local community. How do you foster that kind of conversation and discourse in the classroom to prepare students for those kinds of discussions? I think that part of it is really understanding the different types of voices that you have. And I think it's, it's understanding the function of having a voice and when do you use different voices for different things. So we're really careful across all the schools that I've worked with to never try and, um, to never try and colonize our students' voices. And what I mean by that is say, this is the predominant culture of the country. This is the way you have to speak. This is the way you have to be. Um, You have to uh, change yourself and and strip your culture and extract that from you. And I think Dr. Chris Emden from Columbia University is a really great example of someone who can really talk about that cultural relevancy when you're teaching. So you want to start by honoring the student and their voice the way it is and the way that they speak at home, because we don't want to say that's the wrong way to speak or we don't talk like this. But 
We also, I guess, but's not the right word. And in addition to that, we also want to teach our students that there are different ways to speak in different contexts. So the way I'm talking to you right now on this podcast is very different from the way that I would speak to, um, you know, my sister on the phone dishing about something or the way that I would speak in a keynote or the way that I would speak to my husband in a fight, (laughs) maybe. Um, But, you know, I have different voices for different things. And so we teach our students how to use their voices tool and how to modulate that voice to do what they need to do. And we practice that in the classroom. Um, And you can do everything from mock debates to, um, you know, Twitter, to mock Twitter chats. We use today's meet a lot to teach our kids how to speak um, eloquently in social media, Hmm. uh, but in a safeguarded walled space because it's not, you know, actually out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are all things that we we consider. Hmm. Definitely a huge fan of using today's meet for that function. And we'll put a tutorial for how to do that in the show notes. So one of, one of your TED Talks, I don't know, I think you've done a couple of them, but you mentioned how you thought one way to increase student agency would be to roll out Genius Hour. And you thought that after you introduced this, that the students would give you a um, stand on their desk and slow clap for you. But it didn't exactly <laughs> go like that. Can you tell us um, what their response was to the increased freedom you gave and how you changed your instruction to to meet that? Yeah, it was really sobering. I thought I was like, this was my like, um, you know, moment of moments as a teacher. And I, I thought that like the biggest problem with my students um, not being able to be creative in the classroom was that you know, I just needed to give them time. And then if I gave them time, they would do it. They would just be creative because they're kids and kids are creative. But what I, what I failed to recognize is the, the effect of schema and the effect of the situation and the setting. And that we have essentially brainwashed our students into seeing, you know, school as a uh, creativity free zone, as a free will free zone. Um, And, and thinking, you know, like when I'm at school, there's always a correct answer. When I'm at school, the teacher always um, knows the best when I especially in math right I mean yeah yeah, yeah. and so when I said to my kids like today is essentially like do whatever you want day and I want you to explore your creativity and try this out and la 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 they they asked me for a rubric they like they didn't know what to do at first they just kind of sat there and looked at me and then they kind of like puttered around and then they were like well we don't know how to get an a in in genius Mm. hour how do we what where's the rubric like where's my checklists what's the sentence stem and I was like I broke my children it's like what Sir Ken Robinson said like schools are create killing creativity and I am the person (laughs) who killed it for my (laughs) so I I had to reintroduce them into to embracing creativity in a school setting and that took time um and and giving them the tools to understand like how do I ask hurt your head questions that it's okay not to know what the answer is that being in school and not knowing the right way is is not only accepted but but wonderful Mm. That's it, it's such a hard lesson to learn. I, I I applaud all of us for like learning it and then moving past it. But you've got some great tools too for teachers that find themselves in that situation. Because I, I I you know as a as a teacher I've definitely found myself in that situation where it's like you know oh I, I need to learn about this thing but what what's my end goal what's my plan what's my um, where's my rubric and my checklist and you have something called a teacher innovation exploration plan. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's helping teachers find their own passions? 
Yeah. So that kind of goes into in the book about that, like problem based, um, problem based innovation that I discussed. So basically when I was trying to do this one-to-one thing, I was like, I was lost. I was a hot mess for a long time. And I think a lot of times when we see people who like are on Twitter or speaking at conferences, we're like, Oh my God, they're just naturals. They just like, yeah. we're innovative. But no, I was like a hot stinking dirty mess. Like, <laughs> I seriously thought about like taking all my iPads and like digging a hole and burying them and be like, I don't know. They just disappeared. <laughs> so I, I remember saying at one point, like, I wish I just had an IEP for this. Like, I want someone to, like, just make this easier for me. And and that realization is, like, why why don't we? Why doesn't every learner have an IEP? Kids and teachers. So it's identifying your challenges, the, your struggles. Like, what are you most struggling with? Like, we do with our kiddos. And then coming up with strategies to scaffold and support growth around those challenges, creating a benchmark of time of like, I hope to be here by this time. I hope to be here. Identifying the supports you need, be it digital person supports, PD, what have you, and then having an ongoing system for reflection. And um, instead of trying to say, I'm going to get better at everything tomorrow, it's selecting one challenge and digging deep using that process to really explore the um, metacognitively, like how are you growing as a practitioner in this, in this innovative um, space? And so the teacher innovation exploration plan is something I write about in the book. And the way the book is set up is you identify your challenges in the first couple chapters and think about like what mindset changes do you need to make as a teacher, but also acknowledging what are the mindset changes you need to lead your students through as you're embarking in this, Um, filling out the beginning of the teacher innovation exploration plan. The middle is like, what's your challenge? Here are some innovative solutions. And the third part is how do you become a leader? How do you pay it forward? How do you share that? And how do you take your kids to the next level? Um, and what I, I really have seen is interesting with the TIEP is I wrote it initially as something you do as like um, a lone journey in your adventure. Like I imagined, um, you know, the whole thing is the metaphor of sailing and adventuring. And I imagined like someone alone on their, their boat sailing across the like treacherous sea of innovation, trying it on their own. But the way that people really picked it up as a coaching tool and mm-hmm. a lot of education, innovative leaders who've already made that journey and are doing really rad stuff have been like, I don't know how to get my most resistant teachers to innovate. And they've written me and been like, the TIEP has gotten that teacher who's like, oh, heck no, I'm never using that that idea or tool or whatever to finally try stuff because I'm coming at it from their needs and their problems. Um, so I've seen, you know, my book has been picked up by people who want to become more innovative personally, but really crazy is coaches like tech coordinators and tech coaches are using it to try and scale innovation throughout whole buildings. So we try to have a pretty good mix here of high level philosophy and also nitty gritty nuts and bolts and techniques. So as a member and actually the lead of that tech team, can you tell us your three favorite time-saving hacks that could be um, technological in nature or they could just be just workarounds for things that used to take a long time? Yeah. So one is really thinking about your inbox as an, as a task list is something that I do. And I think a lot of people do. So I get emails and I'm like, this is what I need to do. And when I need to remember something, I actually just email myself and say like, don't forget to get eggs or what have you. Um, and there's this, there's this great book that I'm not going to remember the name for, but it talks about the four D's like 
to delegate, do, oh, I wish I remembered what the name, the four D's of productivity and how to use them. I just Googled it. Um, do, delegate, delete, and delay. Huh. And I'm trying to find out, I want to give credit for who, who wrote it, but Mike I'm, Renahan. No, that's just an article. I'll, I'll find it. Yeah. But so full disclosure, I did not come up with this. Someone wrote a book on it and I don't remember who it is. And I apologize to whoever that person is. <laughs> whoever this is wrote about the four D's of productivity. And that really changed my life. So like I looked at an email and I was like, okay, can I, can I do this right away? Can I delegate it? Can I delete it? Or can I delay it? And using tools like Boomerang for Gmail mm. uh, or Google's inbox, I, I'm always at inbox zero, but I still have like a million things to do. I just I just do it more effectively. So if it's a quick thing, like, hey, Jenny, um, like, you know, my husband emailing me, like, hey, can you pick up eggs on the way home? Like, I could just write back right then and be like, no, <laughs> or like, yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's spam, I delete it. Sometimes I do a lot of work that's not for me to do. So I've learned to like be better at delegating and forwarding it to someone. I love Boomerang because when you delegate, you were originally assigned the task. And if it doesn't get done, like you're the one who's on the line for it. So I can, I can forward it and say like, Hey, you know, Hey Brian, like, can you work on this for me? And then using boomerang, I can say, if no reply by X date, come back into my inbox. So if that person blows it off, then it comes back to my inbox. I know to follow up. And then delay is like snoozing it or, or delaying it. So I was just on vacation, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And there were some things where people were able emailing me about that I just, I couldn't do because the things I needed were like on my desk at home or like I needed to be at a certain place. Um, so I was able to like snooze that email to either a place or a time. So I was able to say when I get home and put in my address, my phone knows where I am, like come back to my inbox or when I get to California to meet with my boss, come back to my inbox or by this date, come back to my inbox. So that that's been really great for me about like getting out of um, email purgatory. Hmm. That is I live in email purgatory. Cause I always just right click and say, Mark is unread. Oh, and so that, I... that makes my inbox like literally have thousands of unread emails in it. So I'm, I'm going to listen to this part like 10 times and I'm going to, just handle my inner Jenny and make it happen. Yeah, for Gmail is a godsend combined with that mindset of the do, delegate, delete, and delay. Yeah. Huh. How about um, in classrooms? Do you have like uh, apps or things that you, you, you used when you were teaching or that you recommend teachers use now to, uh, I mean, outside of email to hack or time save in the classroom? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that... Um, grading is always like a forever time suck of teachers. So Mm. about the types of assessments that you're creating and if there is a way to automate it. So obviously you want a lot of assessments that are more qualitative and that aren't quick, quick to grade, but sometimes you just want a quick exit ticket. You just want to know, like, does my kid understand what like a con, you know, like a complex word, whatever, actually I was trying to say a literacy to idea and I, I don't know literacy very well. <laughs> it's good. I, I'm on the same page. I, I got it. Do they know what an adjective is? Yeah, there you go. 
Um, and so then, you know, using things like Google Forms and Fluberu or Google Classroom, like the quick grade um, programs is, is really rad because then you can get that quick dipstick information about them, which then saves time for you to be able to um, get that deeper qualitative feedback. I think a lot of teachers have struggle with doing qualitative assessments because they're spending so much time grading, you know, spelling tests and like all the like really things that can be automated. So I think ask yourself, like, can this be automated? Can a robot do this? And if yes, automate it. And then that gives you time to do the things that a robot can't do. Cause the answer is going to be no for a lot of things. And that's okay. Just make more time for those things a robot can't do. So you were recently featured in an NPR article, which is a huge feat in and of itself. And in it, you talk about the band. Okay. Go which is awesome, and I love all their music videos. Can you tell us how you used their videos in class? Yeah, absolutely. So OK Go has been one of my favorite bands for a really long time. I I love that music video that they have of uh, running on the treadmills. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but if not, like, pause this and go watch the YouTube video. It's Here It Goes Again. and It's it's so good. (laughs) Watching it and being like, they are so coordinated. I would definitely fall and die. (laughs) Like, how are they doing that? But they, the thing that I saw as a math teacher is like all the mathematics that goes into it, like the rates, the choreography, what speed was each treadmill on. You could see in the video that, you know, they weren't at a consistent speed on every single device at all times. And so that got me wondering. And the thing about OK Go is they have an entire library. All their music videos are highly mathematical. There's patterns, there's rates, there's geometric concepts and all of them. And so it really got me thinking like, like I could teach with this, 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 like I, as a, a full-size adult have so many questions and it sparked so much curiosity in me of like, how does this work that I would bring it to my kids and have them ask the questions and investigate it. And as time went on, I realized that the curiosity wasn't limited to mathematics, that there were questions of science, of, of culture, um, for social studies, of literacy, that really, uh, music, uh, physical education. So I started building these lessons with, um, um, colleagues and have doing interdisciplinary um, explorations inspired by the OK Co videos. But then there was just like the pure theme of creation in it, of doing something really amazing and creative. And so my kids started making their own music videos and their own Rube Goldberg machines and, and uh, drone-based pattern videos and things like that, um, inspired by OK Go and coming up with their own um, inspiring, hurt your head with curiosity type uh, visual feats. That's, I love the hurt your head saying. I love. Are, are those videos on your blog? There's a lot. So if you go to bit.ly slash students rule, a lot of them are on the YouTube channel. Um, not all of them because and it always works this way where it's Murphy's Law. Some of my most creative kids work. Their student, their parents didn't want to sign media releases for it. I'm oh. like, the world needs to see this. <laughs> that is tough. Yeah, student <laughs> privacy is real. Yeah. That's awesome. So you have a you have your blog too, and you've got so many amazing tools. I want to just make sure to give a shout out uh, for our listeners to go and check it out. Teaching like it's twenty nine ninety nine. Is that a, a nod to Prince or what? Uh huh. Absolutely. That's awesome. I love it. It's beautiful. So thank you so much for all of this, Jenny. Before we let you go, we do have a couple rapid fire questions that we like to ask all of our all of our guests. So we're gonna just have a couple, and we'll do these quick before we uh, before we let you go. Does that sound good? So our first one is, if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting out your message to millions and millions of people, what would be on your billboard and why? 
If you, I think like if, I think for me, um, the key, the key to being a better teacher is listening to your students more. I think that that's like something that I've, I keep trying to tell people and talk to people about, like talk, you know, the, the whole concept of talk less, listen more. So one thing that I would really want on a billboard, if maybe it's not just teacher, like if we want the world to be a better place, we'll listen to our, our kids more type idea. And I, I really think that we talk at our, our children in, in all cultures more than we listen to them. And I think if we reverse that, we're going to find out that there's a ton of wisdom in the innocence of, of a kid and also the um, unbridled curiosity that they have. And so I think just listen to them more. Talk less, listen more. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. We'll Photoshop the billboard in our show notes. I like it. All right. Next rapid fire question, equally as difficult, is in the past five years, what belief, behavior, or habit has most influenced your life? Hmm. Saying no. I I have this problem and I think a lot of people in our field have this problem too because we're all really passionate about what we do and not and I think also for a lot of us like this is not just our career but our hobby. I think we a lot of us spend time our free time reading blogs and books and just love it and go to ed camps on Saturdays la 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 and we all find this moment where like, because the intersection of our career and our passion is so close or in the same place that it comes at a sacrifice of like health and family and a lot of other things, but also not even being able to do our jobs well, or like do the things that, you know, like the actual passion well as well. So what I did for a while was I gave myself a no card that I had on like taped to my desktop computer at work. And I had to say no to three things a month. And it was really, really hard. And sometimes at the end of the month, like I'd be like, oh, I haven't said no to anything. And I have to find three things to say no to. It was horrible because I'd feel like if I said no, I was closing the door to something or I wasn't learning. But what I found was it gave me so much more time to be better at the things I was saying yes to. God, that's wow. amazing. I really I like that. Have such, I, I think you're exactly right. People in this profession, like we just love it. It becomes so consuming that um, it really starts to hurt in other areas. So saying no, we can all get better at that. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for not saying no to us too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so thank you for that, Jenny. And and really for this whole conversation, you've been amazing to talk to and listen to. I, I know our listeners and, and me, we can all learn so much from your perspectives and, and your work. And we just really appreciate you taking the time. Jenny Magira, straight fire on the mic. That was amazing. So much stuff to take away from that interview. Let's close up shop and talk about what we learned and what we loved. I loved the idea of taking just quick, easy video that applies to what you're teaching and sharing it with your students. What an amazing way to show that your content is applicable to real life. And I thought as a social studies teacher, I could have brought my cell phone to the DMV and taken a quick video and shown how what we learned in class that day applies to the real world. I loved how she did that at the grocery store and related it to math. Becky, what did you learn? Yeah, I learned so much from her about the importance and possibilities for truly personalized education. I don't know that I've ever spoken to someone so dedicated to learning as much as she can about each individual student in order to meet them where they are and then push them to to their potential. I thought that was really inspiring. And I I was really blown away by the fact that she went back to school for math education when she was kind of afraid of math just to face the dragon. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, definitely. I think it's pretty natural to run away from the stuff that we're afraid of and avoid it as hard as we can. But I think to run to it and to embrace it was super brave. And we owe it to our students to be brave. And hopefully our listeners, if something you're scared of, that the show can inspire you to run towards it and conquer it. 
Well said, Ben. Well, as always, we hope you're feeling more informed, inspired, and connected than you were before you tuned in. And we really want to take a moment to offer a super sincere thank you to our listeners for all of your support. We are pushing the 15,000 download mark, which after just seven weeks is amazing to us. So please keep listening, sharing, and subscribing. And we will try to keep talking to people with, frankly, whom we have really no business talking to about topics that they've studied for years. Again, if you have recommendations or suggestions, hit us up at tinyurl.com backslash brainwaves feedback. And as always, have a great generic time of day.